You're listening to episode 163 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Hey, what's up, storytellers? We have Sona Chairapatra on today's episode. And before we jump in, I have a super quick favor to ask. If you haven't done so yet, I'd be so grateful if you could please head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our show. And whenever you have some free time, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a rating and a review. From what I hear, it helps our show become more visible to new listeners and every bit helps to get the word out about 88 Cups of Tea. So thank you so much. On that note, I want to highlight one of our listeners who took the time to write a very thoughtful review for us on Apple Podcasts. This storyteller's username is Indy815, and they wrote, This podcast means so much to me as a reader and a writer and a human. Yin is full of heart and really cares so much about her listeners and the wonderful people she communes with on this podcast. If you want to feel encouraged, I highly recommend that you take the time to just listen to a handful of episodes just to see the magic and then subscribe. I highly recommend Holly Black, Kelly Loy Gilbert, and Nettie Okorafor as starting points because I just keep going back to them for inspiration, but every episode is gold. I have been an avid reader my entire life and have taken that path into the field of librarianship, which is magical and difficult and a fun world to navigate as a woman of color. Only within the past few years have I been encouraged by my partner to take up writing as well. The struggle has been real. I battle with depression and it manifests in so many ways. The most troubling being imposter syndrome. When my friend Eunice shared this podcast with me, I found in it a safe space to battle all of those feelings and leave inspired. Yin just reached into my life and shared with me all of the goodness and writing tips and camaraderie that I didn't know I was missing. I am not a Facebook user, so I can't speak to that group, but following her and all of these authors on Instagram has added even more positivity and hope to my life. Keep up the phenomenal work, Yin. I hope to meet you in person one day and give you the biggest hug as a thank you. Thank you for your lovely, lovely feedback and for being such a thoughtful supporter in our community. I am so happy you found a safe space in 88 Cups of Tea, and I hope you'll be able to join one of our future community meetups. And until then, I'm sending over the warmest air hug to you. For today's episode, thank you to Four Sigmatic for supporting our work as a go-to community for storytellers. I am so excited about this partnership. Four Sigmatic is a superfood company whose mission is to take over the world with their delicious coffees and teas that are all made with functional mushrooms and adaptogens. I'm going to get into all the details about what that means at the end of the show, so be sure to hang around with me to hear more about these guys. Our storytellers receive a special 15% off, so be sure to head over to foursigmatic.com slash 88 cups of tea, and that's spelled F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash 88 cups of tea, or use our exclusive discount code 88 cups of tea at checkout. Now on to today's guest, Sona Chirapatra. She is the author of her upcoming solo debut, Symptoms of a Heartbreak, and is also the co-author of Tiny Pretty Things and Shiny Broken Pieces. 
In addition to writing novels, Sona also worked as a celebrity reporter and editor at People and Teen People magazine and contributed to publications like the New York Times and Teen Vogue. She is also the co-founder of Cake Literary, a boutique book packaging company. In our conversation, we dive into how she came to be a storyteller through screenwriting and fiction writing. We also dive into how she adapts novels for film and TV along with a peek into her screenwriting process. She shares her thoughts on how our streaming culture creates space for YA and diverse content to thrive and reach wider audiences. And we unpack Cake Literary from discussing what book packaging is and where it fits into the publishing process to digging deep into Cake's mission on creating organic diversity through high-concept reads. Further into our conversation, we talk best practices for listeners interested in co-authoring and seeking writing partners. Sona also gives us a snapshot of her highly anticipated novel, Symptoms of a Heartbreak, and shares her best tips on overcoming writer's block. Now let's jump right in. Sona, I am so happy to have you on the podcast. When we first met, it was at a panel last year, right? Like it was like last February, I think it was around Chinese New Year's, and it was for Asian American Voices in the YA industry. And I remember you being one of the seven panelists and your conversations were so full of heart and you can't help but be so drawn to you. And I'm so happy to that this is finally happening. I know it's been a long time in the making that we've been talking about this. And you have your book, Symptoms of a Heartbreak, coming out soon on July 2nd of this summer. And your episode's coming out at the end of May. So by the time everyone's listening to this right now, there's going to be about a month before your book comes out. So how are you feeling? I'm feeling really excited and a little nervous. And I cried on that panel, right? Yes, you did. Because when I talk about the book, actually, it's a book my dad would have loved and he doesn't get to see it. So I'm a little sad about that. I'm so sorry. At the panel, I really understood your relationship with your dad, how close you were to your family and And that really, you know, when you started tearing up, I started tearing up. I was like, oh my God, just making me cry. And my contacts are getting wobbly. I can't see right now. Can you give a little bit of a background as to how much of an impact your father had on your life? Also, I know your family is hoping you'd be a doctor, right? From what I remember at the panel. Yes. So if we could get into that, I would love that. Just to give the listeners a little bit more of a preface and unpacking of your background. Start off with your earliest memory of falling in love with storytelling, and then go from there. Okay, so I was always a really avid reader from a very young age. My mom says I started reading when I was like three or four. I don't know if that's true, but (laughs) we lived on a place called Library Place in Edison, New Jersey, when I was a really young child. And the library was literally like three buildings down from our apartment. So when I was little, my sister and I, my sister's 16 months younger than me, so we were like sort of like twins, we would walk down to the library by ourselves, even when we were like six and seven. Now you can't really do that. (laughs) But we would, and we would spend hours there. And I was the reader. She was the talker of the two of us. And she would get really frustrated with me because I would just bury my nose in a stack of books and she would just be yapping. But we shared stories a lot when we were growing up. And my parents were both pediatricians, but my mom always indulged my love of reading books were like the one thing that she would just freely buy me because she thought it was important to read. She came from a family of 10 kids and a lot of them were not very academic, but she was, she was the second oldest. 
And her goal was to become a doctor. And at that time, it was still kind of rare for women in India to do that. But her dad saw her passion for it. And so he indulged her with that. So she did the same thing for me with books and reading. So that was really cool. I think it was like sixth grade for the first time when I wrote a story that someone actually said was a good story. It was my teacher, Miss Pinter, and she was awesome. We would have reading time in the classroom at the end of the day, like a dedicated half an hour to just read whatever we wanted. And so she was a real inspiration. So that was like the beginning of me as a reader and then as a writer. How involved was your dad when you were younger with reading and writing? I mean, when Miss Pinter was the first one to be like calling you out and saying you have talent, how was that like as a kid? Was it very much treated? And I think it has a lot to do with Asian upbringing too, where our parents usually see like, oh yeah, it's a hobby. This is good to like, you know, have a good habit to read. But when it comes down to it, we expect that doctor degree, pharmacy or business degree. So my dad is the youngest of the boys in his family and his parents always had big expectations. They sort of assigned roles like one of my uncles is an engineer, the other is a banker and my dad was going to be the doctor and wow. that's what he became. So he followed the path. He he always wanted to be an actor. Like he would <gasps> to like he would dress up like a Bollywood star and did some productions at his college and stuff like that. But he became a doctor like his dad told him to. And for me, because my parents had their own practice, they were pediatricians and they both had the practice together and I was the oldest. I think the hope was that I would eventually take over the practice. Yeah. And that did not happen. Although my dad, until he died, he was still like, you could always still go back to medical school, like even to the end, although he was very proud of what I did do with, at first I was a journalist and then I, I started writing books. So he was very excited about seeing my name in print, both in the magazines and then eventually on the book covers. But the expectation for a long time for me and my siblings was one of us at least would take over the practice. And I became an entertainment journalist when I was right out of college. I worked at People Magazine and then Teen People, which was my favorite job ever. And then my sister was a talent booker. Like she did celebrity talent for like TRL and other places like that. And my brother studied animation. And even my husband is a writer. So so none of (laughs) us became doctors. I think that was a disappointment to him for sure. As it is to many Asian parents, they have specific expectations of their children and they hope that they will meet them. But I think that if he had been around to see this book in particular, which is about a 16-year-old girl genius doctor, he would have really, really liked it. So I'm Mm. glad that he didn't get to see it. I'm so sorry. This is so, oh my gosh, my heart is like, (laughs) my dad and mom, they built a company that manufactures windows, doors, aluminum, glass, all of that stuff. It's just so different from our world of artistry and just the way our brains are. I mean, I'm sure that you absolutely can if you put your mind and heart into studying to become a doctor, but do we want to spend that energy doing that when there's something else that we feel like we have a calling for? You're put in a situation where you're going against filial piety, which is very much expected with our upbringing, but we followed the footprint and the path that our parents expected of us because we love them and we knew this was the responsibility that we had to carry, why are our children not doing that? And that's a conversation that I've had to have with my parents where 
I understand, but also remember that you came here to America for better opportunities for your future, including your children in the future. Isn't that amazing that you've done something so incredible for your generation that you've allowed us kids to then move that conversation and carry that torch forward where we're now in the phase of expression. We're not in the in the level of survival, but it's the level of expression. And I think that says a lot. And the parents should be really proud that they brought us here, that we are able to choose a path that allows us to express how we feel, how we think, how we create. Yeah. And I think that like the thing is, expression and representation is so critical. We, we, both of us, but also a lot of immigrant communities are cultures of storytelling. It's, Mm. it's their historical path. So we can't afford to lose that really. And I think that when you're chasing something like stability, which a lot of immigrant parents especially want us to, Mm -hmm. it's scary to, opt for those paths, but I think they're critical. Like, honestly, without that, we'll lose who we were, where we're coming from, you know? Yes. How did you approach your family or was it kept hidden until you were published in articles and your books about your interest in writing? Like how, how did you approach that? Cause I know talking to some authors, Recently, Julie Dow, who mentioned that she had to keep it a secret for like minimum eight years from her mom until there was something to bring, like a tangible something to show her mom. And that's when she's able to tell her. But everybody's story is so different. For me, I was like guns out blazing, telling my mom and dad, I'm going to be an actor and that's it. And they're like, no. So how did you approach your parents about it if you did at the time? Because I know you said your dad was super proud when he read and saw your names attached to the articles, which is so sweet, and the books. But like before that prepping, writing it before it's published, did they know about it? Yes, they knew about it because I was always really open about it from day one when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. There's a video of me probably like in second or third grade, so like my daughter's age, and I'm pretending to be a newscaster in the video. And my dad was really like, he was like, that's funny. And he recorded it. And then when I was older, first I wanted to do an English major, but he was like, what are you going to do with an English major? So then I became a journalism major because at least there was a job in the title. Ah, yes. So we would argue about it back then, but it was never like I was forbidden from pursuing what I wanted to do. But the understanding was, that if it didn't work, then I would look at other paths. And I got an internship at People Magazine while I was still in college. And they hired me like the day after I graduated. So I had a job at a really well-liked publication, a huge publication right off the bat. So my dad couldn't really argue with that at that stage. But then he was like, get your master's degree. So I did get a master's degree and I got it in screenwriting, which also wasn't quite what he was looking for. (laughs) And then I got another master's degree in fiction. So I am highly educated as he had requested, but probably not in the the fields he had imagined me pursuing. Okay. So what what was he hoping that you're going to get your master's in? I don't know, maybe an MBA or something like that. Gotcha. Like if not an MD, at least one of those kinds of things. Luckily, my useless master's degrees have come in handy. So... (laughs) The bottom line is they just want us to be comfortable and stable and secure 
no matter what we're doing, they really just want the best for us for, for the, in most cases, I think that's the situation, not in all cases, especially with Asian parents, you never know. But at least for you and I, it was more like, how are you going to do this? It's like hard as it is. And it's like a hundred or a thousand times harder for someone who is a woman of color trying to do this. Right. Yeah. So I think that was part of it. But when I got the job at the magazine and that was a magazine they had in the waiting room at their office and their patients were like, is that your daughter's name? Because there's not that many Cherapatras, you know, he was just so excited about that once once he saw it would be okay. Oh my gosh. Thank you for indulging me in this conversation. It wasn't until this podcast where I was able to really have these genuine conversations of like looking back and just sharing and swapping like, how was it for you? Because it's just so nice when you're meeting people that understand where you're coming from. Nice to have these conversations and to recognize it. I do believe like, especially if you have a platform, to use that platform to also talk about it so other people can understand where you're coming from and other people who have felt left out can feel connected through our conversation. So really thank you so much for diving into all of that. And I do also want to get back to your journey too of, of storytelling overall. So when you were going to college, you already knew what you wanted. Then you got your MFAs. I mean, you are educated. Like you got screenwriting masters. You got, you got your masters in fiction. I'm like, oh my gosh, my grandpa would be so proud of you. Uh, I'm like, geez, can I borrow your titles for half a second? I'd be like, look, grandpa. Masters, are they usually, I know they're, they range, right? From two years, three years, is it? Yeah. It's, it's different. In your bio, you got your screenwriting from NYU. Yes. And your creative writing from new school. How was that like? How were those and how many, it was two, three years for each one? So this is going to be an interesting story. (laughs) Oh my God. I love interesting stories. Yes. Take me with you. I was working at people. My dad was still like, what are you going to do next? What's next? What's next? Mm -hmm. You know? And so he was like, you should get a master's degree because he was very education focused. Yeah. Um, Actually my final year at Rutgers when I was interning and things like that, There was one screenwriting class that they had at Rutgers and they offered it every other year. And I took it my senior year last semester and my sister was in it too. So my sister was my first writing partner and we took the class together and then we just started writing screenplays together. And then so I, I am more academic oriented. So I like learning in a classroom setting. So I applied to NYU, but I was already working full time and the actual screenwriting program there is full-time only. So I didn't do that. Instead, I did the Gallatin School and I created a program where I was studying dramatic writing and South Asian diaspora. And so that program, it should have taken me two years, but because I was working and I was taking like one or two classes at a time, I ended up completing it just under the wire at six years because after that, they kick you out. Oh my God. Yeah. But um, the screenplay I wrote for my thesis, which I wrote with my sister, got developed by MTV Films for a while. It was right after like Monsoon Wedding and Bend It Like Beckham had come out and everybody wanted another brown girl story. So it was in development for a while. And then there was another movie that came out with a brown girl that tanked. And then nobody wanted a brown girl anymore. So that, but so that was all while I was at People Magazine. And then eventually I quit People and I went freelance. And then 
my husband and I went backpacking in India for seven months, which was really, really fun. He's also South Asian and he's also a writer. So we both found ourselves like living sort of the gig lifestyle already. And we just decided to pick up and go for a little while. And that was really cool. And then when I got back, I was trying to write an adaptation of the screenplay I had written, but I'd never written fiction before. And I was struggling with it. And so he was like, go back to school. And that was a really odd time because we were actually like, I was pregnant when I applied to the new school. And then when I got in, I was like, I'm not going back to school. We have a newborn, but he made me go. He was like, you need this, you need to do it. And so I did it. And that's where I met Danielle. And that's where I really started writing fiction um, at the new school. And it shifted the path of my life, I would say for sure. Okay, do you mind me jumping in here, Uh, which I find so fascinating because so many people I've had conversations with, they always knew they wanted to start with fiction writing, but you're one of the few who actually started off with screenplays, which I find so fascinating. What drew you to want to be in the screenwriting, dramatic writing world versus fiction first? And I, and I wonder if it's because it tied in with a lot of what you were writing at People Teen Magazine, where a lot of that is heavily focused on stars in the TV, you know? It was exactly that, because um, my other part of my degree at Rutgers, I was journalism and American studies. So I was studying pop culture. In fact, I wrote papers on like Madonna and the construction of the boy band and how teen girls approach that as a psychologically safe space to explore their sexuality and things like that. Like really, Mm. like not the stuff you would see in People Magazine, but definitely pop culture. I was analyzing it a lot. And then I took that screenwriting class. I was a big movie buff. I was a big TV fan and I was reading. Like a lot of what I was reading was YA right from the time I was like 12 through. It didn't even exist in the same form, but I was reading it and I loved youth culture. Um, And that's what I was studying. And so when I took that screenwriting class, it all sort of coalesced into that. And also I was very intimidated by the idea of writing a whole book. For the longest time, I would say, like, I don't have a book in me because it was just scary, like 300 pages or more. That's a lot. That was just really intimidating. So do you feel right now after having several books under your belt that you would segue back into screenwriting or somehow, who knows, even like write screenplay adaptations of your own books or create scripts as well from original ideas that you have? Is that something that you plan? I'm just so curious about you as a storyteller in general. Is that, and not to jinx anything, but is that a direction that you hope to go towards, like a path that you'd love to explore? Yes, definitely. It's actually something like the script that MTV had developed. My film agent has it now. And it's sort of a, I always pitch it as Bridget Jones meets Bollywood. Oh, that sounds so good. Thing is right for that again. Like it has returned. Like they say like the chiclet was dead for so long. And I feel like people need those stories, romantic comedies and just like coming of age stories for those teenagers, but 20 somethings and even 30 something mm-hmm. women. And like, they want those stories. They're hungry for them. So I think the timing is right again for certain stories, but um, yeah, like I've been working on adapting a lot of my own work and I've actually forced my business partner, Danielle, to learn a bit about screenwriting. <laughs> I always tell writers when I talk to them, I'm like, you know, somebody's going to get paid. It might as well be you. You're the initial creator of that storytelling, but it's a different type of storytelling, but it's definitely worth 
trying, you know? Yes, creatively, yes, you should have authority of what you're creating and also why not be you who's adapting it, but also realistically, financially. And I hear that it's a struggle. Even if you have all these books out, it's not guaranteed that you can pay the rent all the time, support a family, especially on your own. So realistically, let's say if you get picked up, your book goes through and is going to be made into a movie or a TV series. Yes, why not you? And the thing is, when you if you are able to write the screen version of it, that's also income coming in to support you, your work, and your family. And that apparently that is also where they say the money is in as well, which I did not know. This is what I'm learning as I'm going. I also want to circle back when you were saying your screenplay that you wrote with your sister is very much like Bridget Jones meets Bollywood and the content right now. Like this is the time right now. I absolutely agree because now there's Netflix that's blowing up too. And Hulu, like all those spaces there's so much more room for content and people are hungry and now like I do feel the audience now has more power because of social media like Twitter Facebook Instagram where they can demand more of this content too and at people the company side can see immediate reactions I'm keeping my fingers crossed and I'm I have no doubt this is going to happen that when we'll just say when when Bridget Jones meets Bollywood your your screenplay comes out you'll see immediate reactions of people saying, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for. Where has this been all the time? All of it right now is just coming into a really good timing where there's social media that allows people to speak up for and demand for what they want. Is this something that you're hoping it hits like big screen or you'd love Netflix? I mean, I think that Netflix is doing amazing things right now for creators because like, if you look at something like To All the Boys I Loved Before. Yeah. Whoa. Yes. The reach that that movie has had. Mm-hmm. I watched it with my daughter, like, six times. I watched it with my whole family, and we were all ooing and aahing the whole time. Like, we felt so seen. But yes, I get it. And I think especially for younger audiences right now, streaming is, like, the thing now. Because they don't have to ask their parents to drive them to the movie theater They don't have to spend the additional like 20 bucks a ticket now for a movie ticket. I think Mm -hmm. that the reach that streaming has now has changed the way we all function as consumers. So I think it's definitely a place for YA culture to live. I think it's profound the way it's changed things. And I think that also it gives us so much room for diversity and inclusion because those audiences are hungry for that content and they're not getting it at the Cineplex because it costs too much. But when something like Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or Disney on demand with all of those places existing, there's so much need for content and it's so much easier to reach those audiences, which would have been considered niche audiences before. Like, Mm -hmm. On Netflix, there's so much South Asian content now. There's so much Bollywood. There's all the K-dramas. It's all there. And we have more access to it than we ever did before. Like, my sister and I grew up watching Bollywood movies, but at first it was like the bootleg videotapes, right? Mm -hmm. And then the bootleg DVDs. (laughs) And now so much of it, like, I can be like, oh, I want to show my daughter this movie, like Dilwale Dunaniyale Jange, which is a huge Bollywood hit. And I don't have to go hunting for it. It's right there. They're on Netflix. Yep. So accessible. 
So there's generations of kids who are being exposed to this, especially cultural content that wouldn't have been accessible to them for so long. And now it's right there at your fingertips. There's other things I can't share at the moment, but stay tuned. Yes. Oh my God. Soda, you're killing me. I'm so (laughs) excited for you. And you know, I love that you and your sister have created something together and you're still, uh, wait, so now you're revisiting it. Mm -hmm. Are you and your sister still working on it or is more of your own project now? Are you, it's like you and your sister as a team. So I'm adapting the screenplay into a novel, which hopefully will be my first adult novel, but my sister and I rewrote the screenplay recently together. And so that's all separate from cake stuff, which is what I do with Danielle. But my sister was my first collaborator in everything. Like we used to write fan fiction together. We used to like, it was new kids on the block. We would tell stories about them. Like we grew up in the same room telling stories to each other late at night. So I'm very comfortable having a collaborator because she was always there. Like, I can't remember life without her because I was 16 months old when she was born. Oh my God, Sona, you're so lucky. That reminds me of my little sisters who are 11 months apart and they have each other ever since they were babies and can't remember life without each other. And I'm just like sitting here like, I wish I had that. And also that she's a writer too. This is so insane. When more of those projects develop, I'm going to have to check in with you and just see how it's going. Um, I'm really excited to keep up on that. Very, very happy for you. I definitely want to talk more about Cake Literary, about you and Danielle, and also symptoms of a heartbreak. So you just mentioned Danielle as well. So you guys met at New School. So at New School, you guys met your classmates. How did you know you both were very much in on the same page, in tune? Were you guys each other's critique partners? Did you guys seek each other out? Were you guys assigned I love hearing these opening stories of how you guys, I guess you could say fell in love as friends. If there's any like fun tidbits, I would love to hear. My work wife, for sure. Yes, exactly. So we met the first day of class and we were, Danielle's very chatty. I'm not usually as chatty as her. I'm harder (laughs) to get to know, I think. But like there was something about, I don't know, we clicked right away and we did become critique partners. We actually had a group that was like five or six of us that we're all, we did workshops for ourselves outside of class and we traded pages and stuff like that. And we just got along really well as critique partners. And we were talking about stories and Danielle and I always talked a lot about how we didn't see ourselves on the page growing up. I mean, she saw herself in the slavery narratives, but it was really like, it was heavy stuff. And you can only digest that for so long before you're like, why can't I have joy as well? Mm. And I barely ever saw myself on the page as a child. The first time I actually found a book about an Indian American girl from my generation, I was already in college and it was a book called Bombay Talkie. And it was not considered YA at the time. It was adult literary fiction, but I think it could be categorized as YA. It was about a girl who was like from the time she was 13 on into her 20s. But it was an Indian American girl from Boston on the page. And I was like, wow, this story can exist. And then I met the writer, Amina Mir, because she came to Rutgers when I was a student there. And I got her to sign my book. And I told her I wanted to be a writer. And she was like, you're golden, which my name means gold in Hindi. So that was really like profound to me. So we talked a lot about those kinds of things, about never seeing ourselves on the page. And at the time, my daughter was really young. She was like 
eight months old. And I was like, she's still not going to be able to find books that represent her. And that was really upsetting to both of us. And then we decided at some point, Danielle told me she had worked at a ballet school as an English teacher, a conservatory in Washington, D.C. And I was like, you, you need to write about that. And then I don't know how we decided to collaborate on it, but that was what became Tiny Pretty Things. So we started collaborating on it. And that was the first book for Cake, which is a book packager focused on lifting diverse voices. Okay, I need to really have you unpack Cake Literary because I think this is so fascinating and so brilliant of you both. Can you please give, just in case there are listeners out here who have not yet heard of Cake, which I highly doubt it, could you just give a summary of what, I know you gave like a brief, yes. like one sentence, but please, like if you want paragraphs, go into it, like we are here. <laughs> Okay, so book packaging is essentially when the publisher or the packager creates the concept for the story. And usually they have the outline, they have the characters, they have all the structure in place, and then they find the right writer for that story, bring them on board. And then in our case, because we are not a publisher, we work with the writer to work on a proposal or a full draft of the story and make it as marketable, high concept and fun. Like we want page turners as possible. And then we take the book out via our agent to publishers. And so some recent cake books that you will have seen on shelves might be The Gauntlet by Karuna Riazi and the follow-up The Battle, which is coming out this year. The Love Sugar Magic series by Anna Mariano. We have A Match Made in Mendy coming out in September by Nandini Bajpai. This year alone, we have Tristan Strong coming out on Disney, and it's going to be amazing. So this year alone, we have six books hitting shelves. Congratulations, first of all. That's massive. Okay, hold on. So what I'm hearing is, because this is, I'm also very new to this, and the only other thing that sounded a little bit similar that I am able to understand was, is it kind of like Alloy? Yes. Do you know of Alloy, where... I had one of the authors on where she's like, oh, yeah, they approached her and was like, this is the story idea, blah, blah, like, boom, boom, boom. And they had, like, all the things listed. Okay, so this is your and Danielle's baby. Mm -hmm. Yep. So we started it when we were in grad school, and we used Tiny Pretty Things and its follow-up Shiny Broken Pieces to launch the series because nobody knew who we were. So they were like, why should we buy stuff from you? But we figured if we had a series in, in the market already, they would kind of get the idea of what we wanted to do with the books. And we wanted them to be high concept, fun, page turnery books that had organic diversity in them and featured protagonists of color saving the day because we felt like that was still such a rare thing. And now it's starting to shift. And yes, finally, we get to save the day. We get to kiss the boy or the girl or the um, non-binary person, as the case may be. I mean, like, I think it's finally starting to shift in publishing. And we're so happy that we can be a small part of that. Wow. Okay. Again, I'm going to jump in and pick it apart a little bit more. I love that you're taking something that's so important that you guys are so passionate about. And obviously is a very important thing to push forward is organic diversity, like you were saying. Yeah. You started this when you guys were at a new school. Yeah. So when you first wrote your books, Tiny Pretty Things and Shiny Broken Pieces, did you realize that you wanted to do Cake Literary as soon as you sat down writing the first words together or you realized it after you finished 
writing tiny pretty things and it's about to get published and you guys are like, wait, we could do something even bigger with this. Like, do you remember that first light bulb moment? Well, so Danielle had worked for an agent who works for a packager and I had actually interviewed at Alloy a long time ago. Oh my God. The concept of packagers. And we decided that there was nobody doing it to bring those diverse voices to bookshelves. And so that's what we decided we were going to do. And then we were collaborating already, I think, on Tiny Pretty Things. And we decided to use that series to launch the company. Wow. Okay. So then from there, how did you know how to go from there to get the word out about what you guys are doing and how you're able to shape stories and be aligned with authors who are having the same kind of mission or same kind of values? How are you maximizing getting the word out so that more people who need this service would know to partner with you? So what we did initially was we talked to Andrea Davis Pinkney, who's an editor at Scholastic and also a a really wonderful writer. And she gave us some critical advice. She said, no matter what you do, when you're two brown girls trying to do this, you need to make it sexy. You don't need to make it feel like a chore or like work. You need to make it something that just feels like, oh my God, I need this. It's delicious. Give it to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's what we did. We know as two writers of color, especially as new writers who didn't have anything out until we had Tiny Pretty Things out, we had to put our best foot forward at all times and just be super presentable, super professional, like really know what we're talking about because for people to take us seriously as women of color, it was going to be that much harder. And so she said, make it sexy. And so that's what we did with the website. We paid good money to make the website look beautiful, presentable. We started taking as many meetings as we could with editors and agents and things like that. And we started talking to writers because writers are the lifeblood of cake literary and we're writers ourselves. And we want to do right by these writers, especially because they're also writers of color and a lot of them are new. So it's, it's a matter of holding the door behind you and letting other people through. I think that's the primary focus we have. And so a lot of the writers that we worked with, especially initially, are debut authors. This is their first book. And we're sort of offering them a crash course in publishing because now we've been through the trenches a few times and it can be a rough ride. Mm. So come on, we'll walk you through. We got you. We're going to help you out and protect you as much as we can during the process. So that's what we try to do. My question right now is going to be a little bit more specific to how your relationship with the authors works. So let's say they work with you for the first book, right? And let's say there's a second book that comes up. They have an original idea. Is this something that you guys are like, okay, we're kind of attached at the hip right now. And then we develop all projects together from now moving forward. Or do they have the freedom to have you guys as their mentor and launching pad? And then they you know, if they have like another idea where like, you know, I think I got this or like, I think I want to explore this on my own. Like, how does that work? No, we're not in this together forever. Our goal is to get you in the door and help you as much as you need, but for you to find an agent, for you to sell your own work once you're there, because we want you to grow and leave the nest. We want you to be able to call on us if you need us, but you have stories to tell. So we want you to tell them, like, honestly, 
we've had several writers where they've done work with us and then we've helped them by connecting them to agents. Hopefully if there's an editor who they've worked with through us and the editor's like, yes, now I want this person's story. We're so excited to be able to help any way we can, but we want them to be able to make their own careers. It sounds very hands-on. Yes. Oh, I love that. It's just incredible because you and Danielle sound like people who have so much heart in every single thing you do. What better way of coming together and creating these stories, helping them launch their careers, which is so exciting. And I saw on your website, yes, your site is very sexy. I have to say. We're redesigning it. So it's going to be even sexier soon. (laughs) Are you serious? Oh my, oh my gosh. I was gonna say, I cannot even imagine because designing websites professionally, it's so much financial investment where it just, you know, I love that you guys are going the extra mile. And I think it says so much about both of you and your efforts. And I see that there's imprints. It says, explore the other imprints of cake, literary, baby cakes, cupcake, cake, layer cake, cake pop. Can you explain that? Yeah. So right now, most of our books are YA or middle grade, but eventually we hope to expand out into adult and also do some picture books because we think that's such a critical market, especially for little kids to see kids that look like themselves. Yeah. Like I have a five-year-old, you know, when he sees a brown kid on the page, oh my God, his mind is like blown, you know? Right. He's desperate to see himself on the page. And then eventually with Cake Pop, we're hoping our film and TV stuff will go through Cake Pop. Wow. Talking about actually executing on something that you feel very much there's a need out in the space and actually doing it and providing this. This is incredible. You guys are really literally work wives because you're doing this company. You're also writing books together. How is that like for you when co-authoring also being business partners? Any advice you can share from your end with anyone who's seeking out their co-author partner or in the trenches of thinking of doing something where they might need like a business partner? I think the the critical thing is that you need to be on the same page as far as what long-term goals are. So for Dee and I, we have different strengths and we have different, well, certainly I have different weaknesses from her. I actually just got diagnosed with ADHD literally last week. And it's been an interesting journey to that point because so since my dad died, that was like November, 2016, which was also a critical turning point politically for us. A lot has happened since then. I think it's just a lot has been happening in my head. And I think I always had ADHD, but it was never diagnosed because I'm a brown girl And I managed to get stuff done. I have two master's degrees. Girls don't get diagnosed anyways. People in South Asian culture don't talk about maleness or disability, period. Like there's so many things at play. But Danielle being a teacher and a former librarian as well, she had seen it so many times, especially in girls. And she was like, you need to take a look at what these symptoms are because I always thought it was like, you know, the hyper five-year-old running around in circles. That's usually a boy, you know, disrupting the whole class. That's what I, my picture of it was. And I actually have probably nine out of the 10 symptoms. So eventually it became sort of debilitating in that I was not carrying my weight. And Danielle was like, we need to do something about this. Let's figure it out. So recently that has happened, but I think knowing that we've worked together for so long 
and her knowing like, this is what Sona needs to get things done and sort of pushing and pulling me along a lot of the time. I think that's just a testament to how dedicated we've been to this and how dedicated she's been as a partner to me. Yeah. You know, I couldn't ask for a better partner and she's doing so much. Like she is one of the, we need diverse books, executive team. She has a huge best-selling series in the bell. She's got a lot going on, but she's still trying to pull me along and not let this implode, which I'm forever grateful for that. I really admire both of you and your relationship with each other. And it just sounds like communication is key. Yes. Being completely transparent. This is what's happening. How can we do this? How can we find a solution? Being practical about it too. That says a lot about your partnership with each other and your relationship with each other is that you guys have so much trust in there that the communication flows easily. So that's what I'm taking from this. And I admire that so much from the both of you. Now, going into writing with each other, how is that writing books together where do you guys say like, hey, you focus on this character, I focus on that character, or can we meet on this day at this time and hash this out and write this out? Or do you guys assign each other certain outlines or create the outline together and say, I'm going to take this half, you take that half? How does that work? So when we first started, Danielle was a pantser. She didn't have the outline. And I have dragged her kicking and screaming to the <laughs> other side. And still, like now she says that she's a headlights writer. So she writes the outline for the next six chapters or so and then and then goes forward and then completes more. But for Cake and then also for our work together, we do an outline. And that started with me because I would just outline everything and I still do. I need it to guide me, even if we don't stick to it 100 percent and we never do it lays down the bones. And I think that comes from coming from a screenwriting background, like almost always you would do an outline. I, I can't imagine pantsing a screenplay that just seems <laughs> like it would just be like structurally a nightmare, you know? Yeah. But so, yeah, so we work from an outline and then generally when we're writing together, we do try to divide up the characters, like for the tiny pretty Things series, she wrote most of Gigi. I wrote most of June. And then we, we both wrote that together. But then we edit each other and we try not to be precious about it. So like I'll go through her stuff, she goes through mine, and it sort of makes it more seamless than it would have been otherwise. Okay. Obviously with all partnerships, whether it's work wives, husband, wife, 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 whoever, there will always be disagreements, but it's really how you guys approach it. So how do you both deal with any disagreements that you just can't come to maybe an agreement with right away? I mean, I think we are in agreement that overall the work has to be bigger than either of our egos. Mm. And I definitely am the more stubborn one when it comes to stuff. <laughs> and she knows that about me. She knows I will like fight and, you know, pout. And then eventually <laughs> she'll give me like an hour or a day and I'll be like, okay, I've been thinking this through and you're probably right. <laughs> she just gives me the time I need to, to like unravel it. And then like a lot of the time, what we do is we talk. I think two brains are usually better than one. And so if we can talk out the story, we can usually figure out what the right solution is. And sometimes it's a meld of what both of us are talking about. Sometimes it's one person's take. Sometimes it's the other person's take. So you give it time, you talk about it and you figure it out. That's really helpful. 
So thank you for that, for giving such helpful advice. I am really curious about symptoms of a heartbreak. Can you share with us a snapshot of what listeners can expect? And don't worry, FYI, if you ever give any spoilers, it's okay. <laughs> this is the audience where they're like, they they love the journey. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter about spoilers. We've had authors in the past who've given us all the details of spoilers and they still go out and check out the book because they want to know how it was done. Because a lot of the listeners here, majority are writers themselves, not just readers. It's up to you. You could share as much or as little. So why don't we just start with like a summary of symptoms of a heartbreak. And I know it was a lot, it, it was dedicated to your dad that you were mentioning. Yes. I'm excited to hear about this because this really sounds like a story from the heart, a very meaningful one for you. Yeah. So the the pitch for it, I keep calling it Doogie because one day I was watching Doogie Hauser. <laughs> I don't know why it was just on and I was watching it and I'd watched it when I was a kid. And I was like, you know, this really should have been an Indian girl. And that was it. Oh my God, I love that. Yeah, so it was like a lightning bolt. So I pitch it as Doogie Hauser meets the Mindy Project with a lot of the drama of Grey's Anatomy thrown in. There's a lot of elevator scenes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it came up. And I was like, of course, because, you know, growing up with South Asian parents, they can be known to be overbearing sometimes. They have strong opinions. And so the character is a 16-year-old girl genius starting her first medical internship. She works at the same hospital as her mom. It's just her navigating that internship. And then she falls in love with one of her patients, a boy named Link who has cancer. Wow. Okay. I just got chills everywhere. That sounds so good. All right. Now, can we unpack this and rewind to when you first developed this idea of this girl when she came fully fleshed? Or I know you were think, saying that Doogie Hauser, you randomly watched it one day and you're like, that should be a girl. And boom, that was the start of it. But yeah. from there, what ended up fleshing out first? Was it the setting or was it more so the girl who she is? How did that come about? So I think the first thing that comes about for me usually is the bones of the plot. Like I know if it's this girl, she's going to be a girl doctor. The conflict comes from her mom working at the hospital. And then obviously if she falls in love with one of her patients, that's like the biggest no-no, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the plot and the tension is there. And then it's sort of like, but then who is this girl who would be living this life? And Danielle always is the better one as far as character goes. And so she helped me a bit with building her out. And her methodology for critique usually is to ask a lot of questions and say, I want more of this. I want more of that. Or you're overwriting here. <laughs> like that sometimes happens. So it was really good to have her as a sounding board for this, especially because it was my first project solo and it was a process in that sense. I sort of know her, you know, I know this character. I know Syra. I've lived part of her life. I'm not a girl genius doctor, as you know, but definitely her family feels like my family. And the interesting part was my dad knew I was writing this, but he was sick when I was writing this. So part of the time I was working on finishing the proposal, I was actually sitting in the hospital next to his bed while he slept. Oh. So it was really weird. And just to be in that environment while I was writing this and just to know that he probably wasn't going to see it, you know, it was just really, it was hard. It was hard in that sense. Very hard. 
where are you right now with that? Like, how, how are you doing? I think it's going to be hard. Yeah. Like, especially talking about it for sure. But I think he would have been happy to see it. And I think it is honoring him in a way, you know? Yeah. He always used to say like, he never really read my work because he was not a big reader of English, to be honest. Like he could speak it, he could communicate, but like reading in that language was not something he necessarily did. I don't know. Maybe this would have been the one he actually did. Yeah. Has your sister and your brother read it yet? Yes. And my mom, she's not the character, the mom character, but she definitely probably recognizes a lot of the family dynamics. She said she actually loved the book because she recognized so much of our life and Oh, I'm so happy for you. Sona, I'm so sorry again. I know this is difficult to talk about. I mean, I think you get it. (laughs) Yeah, there are a lot of listeners who would appreciate hearing this too because they have gone through some of their own losses even right now through this year. So thank you for sharing that, Sona. And I'm really excited for your book to come out. And I'm so happy to hear that your mom really loved your book just because she recognized so much of the family dynamic. And I think that says so much of how much heart you put in there in your book. The funniest thing, and you're going to appreciate this coming from your family. Yeah. My dad was always the one that was like, well, where's the TV show? When's it going to be a TV show? (laughs) I mean, and like, I think that he will be happy with what happens in the future. Just for me and Danielle and overall for the company, he will be happy and he's watching from somewhere and he's probably sending all this good energy to us. Yes. And your dad probably has Netflix where he's at. He's like, yep, I am waiting. The last thing he was watching, I remember, and I was really like, one day I cried because I was like, he's never going to get to finish. And it was Grey's Anatomy. He was like... (sighs) oh, you know, I've been watching this show. I really like it. And I was like, oh yeah, what is it? And it was Grey's Anatomy, like literally. And now there's going to be like 18 seasons or something. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for sharing all these memories with me. I feel honored because I feel like I have a glimpse of your family and being a part of your family too. And it's so heartwarming. Thank you for having this conversation with me, Sona, seriously. Because again, I know it's not easy, but I appreciate that you were just so open about it all. You have such a big heart and I appreciate that. Sona, thank you again for this. And I do want to ask you what's really exciting you with your work right now. Well, I just finished Symptoms is now at the printers, which is great. Which is insane and so exciting and scary. Your first venture on your own. Yeah. And then I'm working on a follow-up book, which hopefully will be the follow-up book, fingers crossed. And it's set in the magazine world, which is a world I know really well. So hopefully that will happen. And then next on the docket is the Bridget Jones meets Bollywood. And then I have a fantasy project that I have looking to, which I'm really excited about. So fingers crossed on all that stuff. And then Danielle and I have a lot cooking regarding cake. So we're excited. There's going to be more news coming from us soon. Oh my gosh. I love that you said you have a lot cooking when it comes to cake. I'm like, yes, girl, it is bacon in the oven. Yes. That's so exciting. Okay. So on the same note, what is a proudest moment in your career? Because I'm like, you have so much going on right now where it's going to be really hard to narrow it down. Oh my God. The proudest moment is not not allowed to talk about yet. (laughs) Oh man. Okay. How about before that big proud moment? What was the other big proud moment before that? 
I think I was really excited at the launch for Tiny Pretty Things. My dad had the book. He was just so excited. My father-in-law and mother-in-law flew in. My husband was there. My kids were there. Danielle's family was there. It was just really a celebration. Like just our entire families. And then uh, Danielle's family and my family had dinner afterwards, which was just the cutest thing. It was really fun. And that was a really fun moment. And there's been a lot along the way. There's been a lot of joyful moments. And I think there's a lot coming. So I'm just really excited. Oh, I'm so excited for you. Okay, I'm going to have to circle back and check in. Now, before I wrap this up, I cannot help but ask, I just realized, I'm like, oh my gosh, I should have asked you this earlier. Because you are such a plotter, you're really good with outlines and all of that. And it's a lot to do with your screenwriting background. Do you have any advice to share with the listeners about writer's block and getting past that? So I think writer's block, and I'm learning this from having my own, like I always say I'm a master procrastinator and I'm, (laughs) I love that. That is the ADHD that I never, I just thought it was a bad personality trait, right? Oh. But I think it comes from an anxiety, right? So Mm. I think figuring out the source of the anxiety is probably really helpful. Like, is it just the size and scope of the project? And if so, can you break it down into smaller pieces? Is it that you don't know the character or that you don't like the plot is not quite working right and you need to retool something? I think that is super helpful, but then also just stepping away from it for a minute is probably critical. Like go take a shower because the shower is always where my solution or a walk or go to yoga or cook something, do something else or just binge watch something like absorbing story is a great way to start unraveling your own, I think. And story comes in so many different forms, like listen to a podcast. Okay. That is really helpful. And that also reminds me of something that we've talked about in this community, which is habits that set you up, that support your work, you know, whether that's creatively, productively, or just giving you that ample amount of space, that breathing space to then come back to your work feeling refreshed. Are there any daily habits that you usually have? Like, for example, for me, I really believe in this. And some people are like, eh, you know, not their thing. But for me, it's it's my thing as I realize I've as I've gotten older, habits help me. I used to be able to just go on a whim, not have like everything was spontaneous, but I noticed something as simple as have kicking off my mornings with a green tea or a cup of hot water, something as simple as that really grounds me to clear my mental headspace and just go with the flow. Like I'm very creative after I'm very productive. I'm very like I'm at my best or I have to make sure I have to like try to schedule in yoga sessions multiple times a week, workouts, Pilates, whatever, or else my mind just really it runs really fast and it kind of it gets me really exhausted. Like I can't slow down my brain at times. And that also can clog me up with my work. So is there something... I'm not sure if you're, you work similar in that way. If you do, do you have any of those daily habits that works for you that maybe might inspire the listeners who are like, oh shoot, I never realized I could try that out. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's something I'm actually working on now because I was to the point as uh, with, and I know I keep bringing up the ADHD, but it's- No, it's a conversation to be had. Yes. Thank you. I'm just grasping it now Yeah, or I'm trying to anyways. And one of the things that my therapist is talking about is the importance of routines and sort of making space for yourself. So for example, Danielle works 
out of a office space that she shares. And she goes there and she knows that when she's there, that's work mode, right? And so that's something that I just started doing because working at home, even if my children aren't there, it's got all the clutter of home and it's got the lure of the kitchen and maybe I'll make tandoori salmon right now for lunch instead of doing what I need to do. There's so many things that can be done like laundry and or the dishes or, you know, so I have to step away from that space in order to give myself room to work. And I think that dedicating the time is something that I'm working on now. There's so many other things going on at all times, especially like with cake, there's always administrative stuff, there's writers to talk to, there's editor meetings to take. There's always things going on. So if I give myself two hours and I write it down and I say, these are going to be the two hours where I'm going to work on this story and not check email and not do this other thing or like do all that stuff. I think that will be helpful in the future too. Um, It's something I'm working on right now. I don't have it quite down, but there's definitely things that I need to do for myself that I haven't been doing that I think will help me structure my day and get more things done. Um, There's also tools that I use, like I use um, the Pomodoro app, which clocks 25 minute sessions and then gives you a five minute break. And like, you can count how many tomatoes you did towards your work. So I know if I'm going to work for two hours on my writing, that would be four tomatoes. That is really helpful. So those are just apps you can just download on your phone? Yeah. Danielle uses, I think it's called the Forest app. And that means that she can't use her phone for the set time because if she does, she will kill the tree. And she feels very guilty about killing trees. (laughs) And then I got this one, I think it's called Flip, and it just disables things on your phone. So you can't even do it. It sounds really intimidating, but like if you're like me and you go looking for distractions, it's it's super helpful. I mean, it's insane just like learning about ourselves and our habits. You know, when you mentioned you have a lot of admin stuff, is that something that you can delegate in onto like an intern who's excited to learn or like a freelancer? Is that something that you can do just to save more time for your creative work? Yeah, we just actually got an amazing assistant. Her <gasps> name is Clay Morell, and she's awesome. Congratulations. The awesome thing about her too is that she knows like what my issues will be. Like Danielle, I talked to her about this and made it clear like, so when I needs more nudges, for example, right. and she's just on top of it and there's no judgment, but she just does it. And that's amazing. I love it. And then like the other thing, like you mentioned with your girlfriend, my husband, Navdeep, he's also a writer. Yes. He knows too, like, okay, these are the boundaries we need to draw for ourselves. We can't work while we're in the same room. This is just a fact that we learned after after being together for like almost 15 years, we know this. So if I'm working on the sofa, he will go in the bedroom or Mm -hmm. vice versa, or he'll be like, leave the house. Like He just tells me like, go away. (laughs) And he knows because I will be more productive if I'm not in the house. And that's just the bottom line. And I think having a partner that's supportive in that way, I think that's just critical. Yes. I think especially the more people I meet and the more I'm like, wow, it really does matter who your significant other is or who you go home to. It really is because they can, you know, obviously it's important. Everybody says you got to be strong, stand on your own. Yeah, 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 I get that. But when you're coming home to somebody every single day, there's a huge influence there. You know what I mean? And if that person's not supportive or is, is like another one of those 
things you have to fight against on top of everybody else in, in like relatives and family that you got to prove yourself, you know, it becomes really difficult. It really does. And it kind of wears you thin to the point where you, some people I've met that just don't believe in their craft anymore. Don't believe in their storytelling. Don't believe in themselves as artists anymore because they don't have that support around them. And no matter how strong they are, eventually it will wear thin. And it just says so much, like if we are lucky enough to have the partners like we do, mm-hmm. my gosh, like it allows us to fly and to to blossom and to flourish, you know? And they're just as lucky too. I'm sure you're amazing to your hubby, okay? So I'm a pretty good one, yes. See what I mean? Exactly. So he is just as lucky, if not luckier, to have you in his life. And I'll, I'll be honest, uh, my boo-boo was pretty lucky to have me too. Well, <laughs> he knows it too. Yeah, she's like, definitely. We've had conversations like that before. It's so funny. So let me wrap this up with two more final questions. Second to last being, what are some small manageable steps that you you could share from your own experience for our listeners to apply every week towards accomplishing their writing goals, whether it's screenwriting or novel writing or anything creative? One of the things that I just started using, which has been super helpful. I have a regular planner, which has like the whole week on the spread and you can sort of see what your whole week looks like. But for me, one of the issues was sort of prioritizing tasks. I would do the little things because I could cross them off easily instead of focusing on the bigger things or procrastinating on certain tasks until I was under a lot of pressure to get them done quickly. So I got this, it's like a one sheet daily planner thing. And it has like must do today. So the top three priorities for the day. And then here's all the other stuff that if you get to, it's okay. And you drink your water today It has like what you ate today. Did you make time for exercise? And did you make these phone calls or, or emails or whatever? And so it lays everything out and you can still cross stuff off, but it sort of reminds you what the most important things are. And I think that's really helpful for me. And for people who are trying to complete a project, I think that could work because if you put that spending two hours on this project is top priority, you can focus on that instead of, well, I'll also finish researching all these agents I need to query (laughs) to do for like another year. But you know, That's more long-term thinking and stuff like that. Just like focusing on what you actually need to prioritize, I think is really helpful. It's easy to like put off the things that actually need to get done to move to the next step. And then Donna always reminds me, she's always like the one who's like, remember, certain things can wait and certain things can be delegated. Yes. It's not all on you. So I think that's an important thing to remember. Are there any books that you love? whether it's for craft or just something that blew you away with storytelling that you could recommend to our listeners? For must-reads right now, one of my favorites of the last few years, and the movie's coming out, so get excited, (laughs) is The Sun is Also a Star by Nicola Yoon because the storytelling is so tight. I love the little global insights that she slips in there, like other perspectives or like science bits and stuff like that. And the love story is just phenomenal. And like the the way she pulled the whole thing together, it's just an amazing book. I love all of her work, but that book is just like a stunner, really. I'm so excited about the movie. Like I honestly can't wait. I'm going to take my, my nine-year-old to see it. 
and I've told her all about it. And she's just like, she doesn't understand why the title is The Sun is Also a Star, but she will. The way it's a love story, but it deals with some really meaty stuff. Like it deals with immigration and deportation and cross-cultural love. And also the male lead is Korean and there's a lot of familial issues happening too. So it's uh, the dynamics of all of that, like the way she wove them in. It's just a beautiful book. And are there any other books that you are really loving or like a go-to that you can always fall back on? I really like Big Magic by Elizabeth <gasps> Gilbert. Yes. I think that's a really good, like sort of motivating book when you're like trying to figure out why you're doing this again. That's a good <laughs> tip to pick up. And then I read a lot of screenwriting books in my time, like a lot. So I can send you maybe an email list of yeah. really awesome But I feel like screenwriting structure is a really good basic structure to know, even if you're writing purely fiction, just because the way our brains are wired to consume story now is so affected by it. So just knowing what the rules are and then knowing how you can break them, I think that's a really good idea. Oh, perfect. Okay. This is really exciting. And yes, I would love that list, please. And I'll list it in your show notes page, just so that people can have an idea of what books to look out for or check out if they want to study for their own craft. And Sona, thank you so much for your time. Please let everyone know where they can find you on social media. On Twitter, I am Sona underscore C. On Instagram, I'm sonesone2, which is S-O-N-E-S-O-N-E-2 on Instagram. And that's just what my siblings used to call me, sonesone, when I was younger. And that wraps up our episode with Sona Charapatra. Sona, thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing so much of your insight and wisdom. I so appreciate you and I loved our conversation. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to drop by and say hi to Sona over on Twitter at Sona underscore C. And don't forget, head over to Sona's show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Sona dash Charapatra to find all the resources and books mentioned in her episode, tweetable quotes, and the timestamps of highlights throughout the entire conversation. As mentioned at the top of the show, I am beyond excited about our partnership with Four Sigmatic. Growing up with an Asian immigrant upbringing from my Taiwanese dad and my Malaysian mom, I'm all too familiar with eating and drinking herbs and roots in our teas and soups and even desserts. This is all super common in Chinese medicine where non-toxic plants, otherwise known as adaptogens, are believed to help our body, like boosting the immune system and soothing muscle cramps, to improving brain function and alleviating anxiety. I found Four Sigmatic at a grocery store and immediately recognized the names of the different herbs and mushrooms I grew up having. Four Sigmatic specializes in these herbal drinks that support our immunity, energy, and longevity and help us live healthier, more enhanced lives. I am honestly incredibly impressed at how creative they can get with their blends. I'm talking about infusing the superfoods into mainstream products, including mushroom coffee, mushroom elixirs, hot cacaos, matcha, superfood blends, and this makes it really accessible to those of you who've never tried them before. I know there's a ton of you coffee drinkers in our community, so you're gonna love their mushroom coffee with lion's mane that, get this, supports productivity, focus, and creativity. I even read that lion's mane has been used by Buddhist monks for thousands of years to help focus during meditation. I could not recommend a more perfect drink to switch out your usual go-to morning drink to kickstart the day with super focused writing sprints, for example. 
The mushroom coffee with Lion's Maid is made with 100% Arabica coffee beans and tastes just like coffee. All of their drinks are super easy to make. Just rip open their single-serve packets, add hot water, and voila! I am super pumped they created a special offer of 15% off for our storytellers. Head over to foursigmatic.com slash 88 cups of tea or use discount code 88 cups of tea at checkout. Thank you for supporting a brand that believes in the future of 88 cups of tea. Have a super productive week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 cups of tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.